This morning we're going to pick back up in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2. And as you're turning in your Bibles there, uh, or if you've got an electronic device and you want to uh, scroll, use your favorite Bible app, uh, that's perfect. If you're not familiar with where the book of Revelation is in the Bible, just go to the very end. Um, chances are you'll find like some definitions or something like that. Go a couple pages before that, you'll be in the book of Revelation. Uh, here's where we are. We're looking at a series of churches that I believe were actual churches that existed. And we've talked a little bit on Wednesday nights. If, if, you're, if you've got questions, if something I say kind of raises a thought, come on Wednesday night. We're going to talk through it a little bit more. Um, you know, it's not intended to be a time for me to sit there and uh, bloviate all my stuff about what I think about Revelation. It's for us to kind of discuss and grow and learn together on Wednesdays at 6.30 as, as we know the book of Revelation is going to propose some, some questions in your mind that I can't answer all of them up here. And realistically, I can't answer all of them on Wednesday night. That's what we just talk about it and look at what the Word of God says. But here we have seven churches that Jesus addresses in, in modern-day Turkey. Now, if you're going to go to your map and look right where the Mediterranean Sea bleeds up into the Black Sea in that northern uh, part of Turkey, that's where these churches are. Look on a map, you'll find Izmir. Izmir is where Smyrna, where we were last week week. That's where Smyrna was. And Pergamum's just a little bit more up from that. But here's what's going on. Jesus is addressing these churches in their circumstance where they are because times are not good for followers of Christ in this particular area. There's a lot of emperor worship going on and, and there's a lot of, of, of false teaching going on and there is a lot that is causing fear and consternation among his people and so Jesus is addressing them to encourage them but also to correct them. And we're going to find some of that with Pergamum this morning as we look at Revelation Revelation chapter 2 and as we look at what happens in the church in Pergamum. So, so here's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at Pergamum. We're going to look at truth and then we're going to look at our church together and kind of figure out some things. That's what we're going to learn, learn about. We're going to walk through the passage. I promise you I'm not going to be repeating myself a ton. It's going to seem that way because we're going to kind of go through this passage uh, a couple of times at a couple of different angles. But now that you've had a chance to find your place, if you're able, I'd like to invite you to stand with me. You've had a little bit of a rest uh, during Waymaker. So I'd like to invite you to stand with me as we read the Word of God together. Reading about the church at Pergamum, what Jesus says, starting in Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write... The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know well where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. These teaching to eat things, sacrifice to idol, and to commit acts of immorality. So also you have some in the same way that hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. Or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war with them against the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit of the Spirit says to the churches. But to him who overcomes, 
To him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Let's pray together. Father, we look at your word and we, we wrestle with image and we ask questions of, well, if this was happening 2,000 years ago, what does this have to do with me today? But Lord, what we also know is that all truth is your truth. What we know is that you have given us your word to instruct our hearts, to train us in righteousness, to help us to understand better who you are. So this morning we ask that as we look in Revelation 2, as we look at this passage, as we see what's going on in Pergamum, Father, we ask that you would arrest and captivate our hearts. Instill in us the joy of our salvation, the beautiful words of truth. Lord, help us to come to a fuller understanding of your goodness, your mercy, your grace, even today. Lord, we ask that you help, help us be faithful. In, in a world of faithlessness, in a world of brokenness, even if it's only us. We pray for others, but even if it's only us, that we would be faithful to you. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And here we are, Pergamum. Sounds like a pretty uh, difficult place, right? Anybody want to live where Satan dwells? I mean, I, I didn't see any hands go up there. I mean, here they are. Uh, Planning a church. I mean, I, you know, we have relationships with church planners. We've got a relationship with Justin over in the uh, east side of Atlanta towards Decatur at People's Church in Kirkwood. We've got relationships with Jay and Megan at, uh, at uh, Windsor Mill uh, Freedom Church in Baltimore and also with Anthony Patini and uh, 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 excuse me, Restoration Church in Curtis Bay in the Baltimore area. You know, I'm going to ask them next time I see them this summer when we're in Baltimore, how would you like to plant a church where Satan dwells? I, they might say we already did. I don't know what they're going to say. But, but things are not really great in Pergamum. There's something that is, that, is, that is gripping them. There is something that is pressing on them. And there is something that is affecting the way they go about church and ministry and day-to-day -day life. And so let's look at some things that are true what was true about Pergamum. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to overview the passage. We're going to explain a little bit about what's going on just so we can see boots on the ground, what's taking place where they are. And it starts there and he says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. What we find is that in Pergamum, Jesus was holding a standard of truth. Jesus holds the standard of truth. Now, if you'll remember, as we walked through a little bit in chapter one a few weeks ago, if you weren't with us, uh, that would have probably been uh, January the 12th. If you want to jump online, you can go and watch uh, fbcfairburn.com. Click on sermons. You can watch sermons from the, from the Revelation series that are previous. Go back and watch that. When we look at this picture of Jesus that John portrays, and it says there in chapter 1, verse 17, he says, I saw him and I fell at his feet like a dead man. 
Oh, excuse me. I'm reading the wrong verses. My apologies to you. Verse 12. I turned to see the one that was speaking with me. He understands this is Jesus. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were like wool, like snow, and his eyes were a flame of fire. We saw that flame of fire uh, coming up last week in, in Smyrna. Um, he says there also, he says, um, lost my spot. Um, his feet were burnished bronze and when it is made to glow in the furnace and his voice was the sound of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars and out of his mouth come this sharp two-edged sword. The sword protruding and Jesus is telling him, look, I'm the one that has this sword. Now, now we're not talking about like this like kid's plastic play sword or anything. And, 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 and we're actually not even talking about what you might see Jack Sparrow wield if you're watching Pirates of the Caribbean. We're not talking about, or, or even if you remember, man, I, I remember as a kid, the Marines commercial that used to come on, man, it was awesome. It had this, this, this sword, and it would kind of go, this nice shiny silver sword. It was kind of a thin sword. It's one that you would use in hand-to-hand combat. No, no, the word that he uses here for the sword is this behemoth massive sword that takes two hands and you got to swing it like a baseball bat. I mean, this is a massive sword and it's got sharp edges on both sides so you can cut this way and cut that way. I'm talking you're going to get some damage with this sword. Jesus says, I have this sword in my hand. It's protruding from my mouth. What is this sword? We find in the book of Hebrews that the word of God, chapter 4, verse 12, is sharper than the two-edged sword. It's the same word. It's the same image of the same sword. It's able to pierce to the division of bone and marrow, soul and spirit. What Jesus is describing here is that I have the standard of truth by which you are going to have to be measured, by which all things will be measured. What was true for Pergamum 2,000 years ago is true for us today but he goes on a little bit further and he says I know where you dwell man here's the dangerous thing that Jesus says he says I know now I want you to think about that it's comforting on the one hand for Jesus to tell us I know where you are that's that's comfort unless you're in the wrong place all the teenagers in the room have their cell phones they get that call, it rings. And we know teenagers don't answer when it rings, but it rings and look, they say, oh, that's dad. He put it away. <laughs> See, they, they, told, they told mom and dad. He told mom and dad that he was going to be with his friend Jimmy and that they were going to be uh, at the football game. And after the football game, they were going to go, a group of them were going to go over to Karen's house and they were going to uh, have a Bible study after the football game and he'd be home by 1130. It's 11.45, Jimmy looks at the phone and it's not, or Jimmy looks at the phone and says, your dad's calling you again. So what does the dad do? Because he knows his son's not going to answer. Sends a text message. See, you get the text message, the notification comes up there on your screen and you don't even have to open it. You can look at it and he pulls his phone out and sees the notification there and says, I know where you are. Dad, you've been there, right? 
Sometimes when Jesus speaks and says, I know where you are, it should elicit fear in our lives. And that's the case for Pergamum. What's going on in Pergamum? Pergamum was surrounded by false religion. The entire city was engulfed in false teaching, false religion. Pergamum had become one of the centers for imperial cult worship. What is imperial cult worship? Worshiping the emperor. Bowing down to the emperor. And involved with bowing down to the emperor came the practice of cult prostitution where you'd go to the temple and you would be with a cult, a temple prostitute as part of your worship, as part of what you were doing. And all of this is going around and around in Pergamum and it's all creeping in. And he says there to them, I know where you dwell. I know where it is that you're living. I know what's going on in your city. On the one hand, we want to say, thank you, Jesus. You see right where I am. But notice what Jesus goes on to say. He starts off in the positive. He says, I know where you are, where Satan's throne is. Oh, man, that's dangerous. That's dangerous. But you, look at what he says, but you hold fast my name. See, even in the midst of the surrounding of false religion, faithfulness to Jesus was constantly being put to the test. Where you live this week in Fairburn, where you live this week in Union City, where you live this week in Fayetteville, in Palmetto, in Noon, and wherever you're coming from, in this where you live today in the United States of America, faithfulness to Jesus will constantly be tested. And he says here, I know where you, and you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith. He starts off with this bolstering great statement. I know where you are, and I know it's hard. Man, but you're holding on. You're, you're holding on in the middle of the test. You, you have all of this around you and you're still walking faithfully with me. Praise God for that. May that be true of us. No matter what happens to our city, no matter what happens to our state, no matter what continues to happen in our nation, that he would say, my people are being faithful at First Baptist in Fairburn. I pray that would be the case all over our country. But I pray that it's ultimately true here. But he goes a little bit further. This is how bad the test was. This is what he says. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you. This is not something that we know a whole lot about in America. People being killed for their faith. Last week we talked about it in Smyrna. It came up. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be put to the trial for 10 days and you even might even face death. But even in death, I'm giving you victory because that's what Jesus is able to do. I'm able to give you victory because I am the victor. I hold the keys to death, hell, and the grave. And he comes here to Pergamum and he says, even though one of your own, see, it had not happened in Smyrna yet, but it's already happened in Pergamum. Things had gotten so bad that even the pressure of Satan to say, you know what, I'm going to try to crush the life of the spirit out of your church by killing one of yours. He says, you didn't even deny my faith then. I mean, that's a huge test. I would, I would love, love to think Pray this is not true. But I'd love to think that if push came to shove, 
and, and things in our society turn so drastically against people of faith that even if Christians in America started being put to death for their faith, that we would be faithful. But the temptation is always going to be to morph into the cultural realm, go into society, to blend in, to be a chameleon, to not let anyone know because we fear for our life. And he says, you know what? You didn't even deny. Which, which shows us that even in the test of faithfulness, the people in Pergamum continued to be outspoken about their faith. They were given vocal opportunities. It wasn't just a just go along with the grain. If anybody asks, you know, you can tell them you're a Christian. No, they were actually letting people know, hey, we're, we're still worshiping this Christ. There's some good things going on. But notice he says, I have a few things against you. See, this is the inciting of fear when Jesus says, I know where you are. It's good for him to know where we are when we're struggling and we need that hand of God reaching out into our lives to assure us of his presence. But then he says, but I have some things that I have against you because you have some in your church that are teaching false doctrine. The issue with Pergamum is that they were tolerant of false teaching. The church at Pergamum was tolerant of false teaching. Now, I want to be pretty clear on, on a couple of points here. I want to be clear on all of them, but I just want to make sure that you, know, you get where I am. This is one of the most serious charges you can levy against someone proclaiming things from the Bible. To be a false teacher. And the reason it's as serious is because false teaching is likened to a shepherd who leads sheep into the mouth of the wolf. Uh, false teaching carries people from what is true and real and what God has revealed into man-made myth, into man-centered approaches, into something that resembles wickedness. I shared with you just a couple of weeks ago about Aaron Rodgers, quarterback of the Green Bay Packers, does not believe in hell. The reason he does not believe in hell is because of a formerly prominent Minneapolis-based preacher named Rob Bell who did, came to the conclusion that if God is truly loved, then God sends no one to hell, so their hell is not real. And now Aaron Rodgers has no concept of the idea of hell because of what a pastor told him. False teaching is serious. This is very serious. And the issue at Pergamum was that they were putting up with false teaching. You can't put up with false teaching. You have to call it out. You have to identify it. You have to push it out of your midst. And here, Pergamum said, oh, no, you're okay. It wasn't so much that the entire church was practicing what was being taught. It was that the entire church was okay that it existed among them. Notice what he goes on to say. He says, this is what they're teaching. They hold the same teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Okay, now what's all this Balaam, Balak, and all this stuff? If you go back to the book of Numbers, Balaam was a prophet and he was hired by Balak. Balak was wanting to wage war against the people of Israel. Now, 
the majority of the Balaam story that you come across, you, you think, well, what's so bad about that? Because Balaam's up front with Balak, man, you can hire me, but I'm only going to proclaim what God tells me to. I, I'm not going to prophesy against Israel unless God puts word in my heart that Israel's going down. And so time and time again, Balaam goes out and he prophesies, Israel's going to win, Israel's going to win. And Balak get, Balak gets mad. He's like, I didn't hire you to put good things about them. And ultimately, we, we end the entire Balaam series thinking that Balaam's a pretty good guy until you get to Numbers chapter 25. In Numbers chapter 25, we find this kind of disgusting scenario. It says that while Israel remained at Shittim and the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab, for they invited the people to sacrifice uh, to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor and the Lord was angry against them. So right after Balaam is prophesying good things about Israel, because that's what the word of the Lord had put in his heart to prophesy. Immediately after that, we find the, the, the men of Israel committing adulteries with the women of Moab and then going into idol worship of Baal at Peor. How did this happen? Numbers chapter 31. Numbers chapter 31. Moses is speaking to us and it says... Um, I didn't mark my verse. I apologize. Uh, okay, chapter, chapter 31. Moses said to them, have you spared the women? Behold, these are the ones that caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord. Ultimately, at some point, Balaam told Balak, you know, I'm gonna prophesy these good things about the people of Israel, but... If you just let your ladies walk around uh, scantily clad in front of these men, they're not going to be able to help themselves and you're going to catch them in a weakness of sexual fantasy and then you'll be able to overtake them. They're going to undo themselves and come to idolatry. Now, I do not think that what's happening in Pergamum is exactly what happened in Israel at Peor. But here's what I do think. I do think that there were people that were there in Pergamum, based on the text of Scripture, that were at least putting out there, it's okay to participate in the cultural cult worship that's going on around us. Because he says there, you have them that were holding the teacher block to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. And by committing acts of immorality, let's just kind of read between the lines here. He's not talking about telling a white lie. He's not talking about, you know, eating somebody's food when they're, they're not looking around. He's talking about sexual immorality. Embracing the teaching that sexual immorality within the church is okay. And he says, you've got this running rampant in your congregation. And you've done nothing about it. The church at Pergamon was tolerant of false teaching. He goes on and says, because you have some that are holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. As we talked about Wednesday night a couple weeks ago, we don't know for 100% sure who the Nicolaitans were, what it was. But all of the signs indicate that they had some sort of involvement in a cult sex practice that they were involving in Christian worship. 
Man, you thought all the perverted stuff was just coming out in the last few years, right? No, no, this has been the bent of man since the dawn of time. We go to the good gift that God has given us and we twist it and we pervert it and we use it against one another and it creeps in to ways that we try to do church and worship. Believe me, it happens. They were tolerant. Because of their tolerance, the sword of truth was drawn. He says there, I need you to hear this. Repent or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Wow. See, that's the fear when Christ sees us where we truly are. He's holding his standard. He's holding his word. He's holding what is true. And says, I'm coming. I see where you are. I see what's going on. And unless you repent, unless you shift, unless you come to the understanding that I am the Christ, the Messiah, and I have authority, I'm coming to you and I'm going to make war. Now, I want you to notice very carefully about what Jesus says. He is not threatening the entire church. I want you to hear that. I want you to see that in the text. Notice he says, repent or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them, the false teaching. Christ is not out to hurt his bride. Christ is not out to hurt his people. Christ is not out to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Christ is out to remove the cancer of sin from within us. And sometimes that hurts. And sometimes that costs us people. Let's just be real. But Christ Jesus is concerned more about our holiness than our happiness. He's concerned more about the fact that our hearts are right with him. So he calls to the pastor of the church and he writes to the pastor of the church in Pergamum and says, you on behalf of your church, deal with this and bring about repentance or I am coming after this part of your church. These are things that we've got to take seriously because Jesus does. If Jesus is going to go as far as say, I've got this massive sword wielded and I'm going to make war with them over it, then we've got to hear it. We've got to internalize it. We've got to realize what's going on. So let's talk a little bit about truth because if he's got this sort of truth, we've got to come to grips with some truth. So we've got five statements about truth, five important statements. I wanted to say five true statements about truth, but if it's truth, it's true, right? So here we go, five important statements about truth. We're going to kind of walk through these, a couple of scripture references that we're going to throw out there. And the reason we're doing this and we talked about this in our, in our college class this morning. Um, functionally, we operate on a system of truth's relativity. Uh, we, we ascribe in principle and by confession that there is ultimate truth, that, that, this is, that there is truth out there. But we waver on that in practice. We're, we're not bold about our faith because we, we, we are a little concerned about, well, what if we're wrong? So I'm going to give you five important statements about truth that we can just kind of wrestle with, that we can kind of listen to and kind of internalize because tr truth is truth. And the first one is that truth does not change. Tr truth does not change. If it's true today, it will be true in a thousand years. It was true 10,000 years ago. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't understand or we don't come to a fuller understanding of what is true. It's just that we didn't realize it was true at the time. 
Now, now circumstantial truth might, might change. For example, um, I'm happy now. That's true. Tomorrow I might be sad. It'll be true. That, that does not, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about actual what is real, what is true. Yes, your feelings are real. Yes, your feelings matter. I don't want to offend anybody. But we're talking about what is concrete. Truth does not change. Over in the book of Malachi chapter 3, Malachi the prophet says this. This is God speaking through Malachi. He says, for I the Lord do not change. The reason truth does not change is because God does not change and God has established what is true. God himself is more constant than anything you will ever understand, imagine, or know. And our concept of God might shift the more we get to know him. But that doesn't mean God changed. It just means that we're conforming more to knowing what God is all about and who God is. Because truth does not change. Because truth does not change, truth is not popular opinion. It's not. That statement right there is the reason why we waffle with truth too much. Because we want to be accepted. We want to be relevant. We want to fit in. We want to, oh, we want to morph with society. See, popular opinion changes. I mean, good grief. Just, just, I mean, look, look, at, look at the current political climate of America right now. And this is, not, this is not whether you like Bill Clinton or Donald Trump or whatever, but it's, it's funny to me how, on the one hand, everything that our Democrats currently say about the impeachment process with Donald Trump is exactly what the Republicans said 22 years ago about the impeachment of Bill Clinton. And the defenses that the Democrats used 22 years ago with the impeachment of Bill Clinton are exactly what the Republicans are using today with the impeachment of Donald Trump. Because they're following some sort of popular opinion. It's either true or it's not. Opinions change. Popular opinion is going to shift and it's going to flow with it. And we cannot rely on popular opinion if we want to know truth. And it, it, we just can't. It used to be that in school you were taught certain things about how we are made and what makes us male and female. Now that has even changed based on popular opinion. And so we have a system in place where we can't even rely on the trusted authorities because they're shifting with culture and truth doesn't shift with culture. Truth is not popular opinion. It says in the book of Psalm chapter, Psalm chapter 119 verse 160, your word is truth. You want truth, it's right here. You, you want what's real, it's right here. And the reason it might not make sense in the world around you, what you read on these pages, is because the world around you doesn't care about these pages. But we have a God who loves us enough that in spite of all of the crazy circumstance, has given us something sure, has given us something real. And no, this book is not going to tell you what color socks you're supposed to wear with a brown belt. That doesn't matter. If you don't believe me, go to Walmart. If you don't believe me, just look at the way fashion trends have changed. Good grief. You used to not be able to wear white pants after Labor Day. Now you've got winter white pants and you got all these things. You can change everything. Truth doesn't change. 
Third statement is that truth carries a cost. Truth carries a cost. Notice in Pergamum, Jesus brings this sword of truth because the people in the church of Pergamum did not want to carry the cost of truth. Too many people and too many churches today, and I pray it's not the case at First Baptist Church of Fairburn, they want to be relative with what truth is because the burden and the cost of truth is too great. He says in the book of Matthew, this was if you're following along in the uh, uh, New Testament in, in 2020, uh, this was part of our reading this morning. But in the book of Matthew, Chapter 21, verse 23, it says, When Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you the authority? And Jesus responded to them saying, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source, from heaven or from men? And they themselves began reasoning, the chief priests, saying, if we say it's from heaven, he will say to us, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say it's from men, we fear the people for they all regard John as a prophet. So answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. See, this passage demonstrates the cost associated with truth. For the chief priests, it was if we ascribe truth to what's happening here, then he's going to respond, well, why didn't you believe him? Because to do the things that John the baptizer did, to say the things that John the baptizer said, had to come from the authority of God in heaven. But if we ascribe truth there, if we carry that cost, then we're going to be outed as frauds. Truth carries a cost. Fourth statement of the truth is that truth is attainable. <laughs> Praise God for that. Truth is attainable. Over the book of Matthew, Jesus talks to his disciples and says, hey, who do the people around here say that I am? This is in Caesarea Philippi, Matthew chapter 16. And, and, and they answered, well, some think that you're uh, John the Baptist again. Some say Moses, maybe even Elijah. And, and Jesus says, okay, that's, that's great. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers and says to him, you are the Christ, the son of God. Great confession. And Jesus' response to him is, Peter, you are blessed because you didn't get this from man, but God revealed it to you. You want to know truth? God gives truth. Truth is attainable. You can have truth. You don't have to go walk around on the shifting sands of culture. You can have truth. And the fifth statement is this, that knowing the truth is rewarding. Oh, man, it's rewarding. Psalm 19 is my favorite chapter in all of Scripture. In Psalm chapter 19, verse 10, it says, uh, excuse me, um, they, the, word of, the words of the Lord, are more desirable than gold, yes, much, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey and the dripping of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping your word, there is great reward. So what do we do with truth? 
What do we do with truth this morning? A couple of quick things I just want to walk through with you coming out of the church in Pergamum. How does my church handle the truth? What does this look like? First, we believe what we ultimately hold to be true. We believe what we ultimately hold as truth. And you think, okay, aren't you saying the same thing there? Isn't that just kind of repeating yourself? Yes and no. Yes and no. There is a functional quality to this statement because because truth has a way of shaping us. And if we ultimately believe what we hold is true, that means that we as a church must pursue truth. The church at Pergamum is struggling and we'll see it go one step further in Thyatira next week. But the church in Pergamum is struggling. They're holding fast. They're holding on in many ways, but they're not dealing with what is false. They're not truly pursuing truth. They're holding on what they're claiming, but they're allowing this cancer to exist alongside of them, not realizing that it's going to kill them. So they're not, they're turning a blind eye to truth. They're turning a blind eye to what's actually unfolding and going on. And this is why Jesus comes with the sword to say, we've got to deal with this. And as a church, there's this collective unity among us where we together must pursue what is actually true, which means when we see what's false, we do something about it. We don't turn a blind eye. We don't cover it up. We don't say, I don't want to ruffle any feathers. We'll just let it happen and we won't deal with it. Maybe it'll go. It won't go away. It'll gain ground. No oncologist is going to look at your scan and say, eh, we're just going to leave it. It'll, it'll, it'll go away eventually. It's not a zit. It doesn't just go away. What it does is it takes more ground and it takes more ground. It might be a slow process or it might be an ultimately fast process. When it's found, it has to be addressed. Jesus says to them, if you have an ear, Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. See, he's speaking collectively to everyone, but also individually so that we got to understand that as a church, we have to hold one another accountable. As a church, we must hold one accountable to what? To the truth. Not to the church calendar, not to the church schedule, not to the constitution and bylaws, to the scripture. Now, now we have set forth as a congregation to operate as best as we possibly humanly can according to what the Word of God says. So in our new member material, which we've got a a new at first coming up one month from today uh, on Sunday, March the 1st. Um, I know that should be Sunday, March the 2nd, but we got an extra day this February it's on, it's on me. It's on me. I love you so much. We'll give you an extra day this month. It's on me. So we've got to, we knew it first. And what we do is we outline who we are and how we function as a church because we want it to be here. Because we want to be accountable to you as pastors, as deacons, as Sunday school teachers, as you're accountable to us. We've got to hold one another accountable. Jesus addresses the congregation that then t- uh, brings it into the individual. A congregation cannot be pursuing truth if individually we're not pursuing truth. So individually, we are responsible for truth. Why? Because our actions are shaped by our beliefs. If we believe what we ultimately hold is truth, 
that belief is going to shape our action. Our actions are shaped by our belief. Notice what he says here. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on it. What Jesus is appealing to here, uh, to here with the church is that when you make that statement of faith, you are proclaiming that I am going to act in accordance with what I say I believe. The world has too many hypocritical Christians. Too many Sunday morning, 11 o'clock Christians. Too many, I'm going to go to church and put on my Jesus gear, and my Jesus face, but the rest of the week, I'm going to live like hell, Christians. And he says, if you're going to uphold this, your beliefs are actually, what you're proclaiming is I don't actually believe the gospel is real if it does not shape the way you function in the world around you. And he says, so to him who overcomes, I'm going to give this beautiful gift because you are stepping out and you are acting what you claim to be is true. My favorite dog is a German shepherd. Man, I love German shepherds, man. They, they're, they're, especially the ones that are mostly black with a little brown on the face and a little bit of brown there on the belly. Man, I just love the look. Ever since I was a kid, I, I don't know why, but I saw a German shepherd one time and then like uh, I was like in second grade, I saw one and, and my teacher um, had us do a report and I wanted to do it on German shepherds and I did it on German shepherds. I always wanted a German shepherd. And when I was 19 years old, I got my first German Shepherd. It was a male's name was Thor. He was a rescue dog. He had been rescued from a family that was starving him. Um, and so here's the deal about Thor. Man, Thor came to live with us, was living in our house. And he was a great dog, man. He, he was a protector. Uh, my wife can testify when, when she came uh, to, to my parents' house for the first time, um, if we were walking through the yard, he would get between us. Like even if I'm holding her hand, he would get between us and walk because he was, man, he was glued right to my side. But here's the thing about Thor. Uh, over the time that we had him, especially in the first uh, several months, he gained a lot of weight because he wasn't being starved anymore. He knew that he was going to get his food every morning and every evening. He knew he was going to be fed and he knew where the food was. But if there was another dog present, if there was another dog present, he would not let that other dog eat. Because in his mind, he had been trained to think, I'm not going to eat again. So all of his actions were based on the fact that he's not going to eat again. So we would have to feed him separate from any other dog. Like when I mean separate, I mean, we'd have to put him like in the garage and shut the garage door and feed the other dog outside. Because otherwise he would stand over both bowls and he would go back and forth because he thought that he wasn't going to eat again. See, he acted on what he believed to be true. Actions shape our beliefs. What we hold to be true will be demonstrated. If Christ is the victor, if Christ is the overcomer, if Christ is the one who gives us a new name, a new heart, a new nature, if Christ is the one who reaches into our lives and pulls out all that is wicked and gives us righteousness, then we will act on that if we truly believe it. Who we are will be shaped by it. And the way we act at home, with our husband, with our wife, with our children, with our roommates. 
the, the, the way that we act at work with our coworkers, even the ones that annoy the living whatever out of us, the way we love them, the way we serve them, the way our church presents itself in the community of Fairburn, it will be demonstrated because the truth of the gospel changes how we live. The truth of the gospel changes how we live because we don't have to waffle on what may or may not be. We have something that is solid, something that is real, something that is from the very heart of God himself. And all the false teaching that swirls around us, it might shift the way we behave because we think for a moment, maybe this is okay. But the truth of God says, no, this is what I have done for you. And ultimately it will satisfy. So we hold the truth. Faithfully hold to truth. In just a little bit, we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper. A time that that we as followers of Christ come together. Part of our confession of what the blood and the broken body of Christ Jesus accomplished for us. But before we do that, we've got to ask the question of the gospel. Has the gospel changed how you live? Is there a difference in who you are from now to maybe before you say you met Christ? See, I know a lot of people that can tell me about the time they they prayed a prayer with a, a pastor or a Sunday school teacher, maybe even the time that they, they got uh, dunked in the, in the city of Fairburn water up here, but they can't tell you the difference that the gospel's made in their life. Can I submit to you that you might have had an experience, but it wasn't an experience with Christ. It wasn't a transformed heart. And Christ will still stand with that same judgment sword of truth. That same standard will still be drawn. And the only answer is, I trusted in Christ Jesus And I sought to align my life with who he is and what he taught. We're going to have a time of invitation. Pastor Lewis is going to come forward. He's going to lead us in a hymn. Uh, A chance to to, to allow the word of God, the spirit of God to move our heart, to, to move our lives. Because before we can come to a table like this, we have to ask ourselves the gospel question. Has the gospel changed me? Maybe you're sitting here thinking, man, I'm going to eat that cracker. I'm going to drink that, that little bit of grape juice because of what Christ Jesus did for me. But man, I know I've got this, this sin I'm wrestling with. And just, just come spend some time before we get to the table. Lay it down. Jesus sees where you are. He sees where you are. And if that brings fear, then come lay it down. If it brings comfort and peace, then know that Christ Jesus is working in your life. Christ Jesus is, 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 is able to do far and above more than anything you'd ever dream or imagine because of his great love for us.